Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Prog Notes. My name is Dustin. And I'm Drew. And today we are listening to Moving Pictures by Rush. If you have never listened to our show, what we like to do here is educate and inspire our listeners to uncover and learn about this subgenre by listening and talking about albums from the progressive rock archives that you may have never heard of or want to learn more about. And we both have a massive passion for progressive rock and we'd love to share it with others. Also, once again, and always, to everybody who's been listening to our show, thank you so much for the support. We really, really appreciate it. And always be sure to hit the subscribe underneath the uh, listening platform so you can be notified when we launch a new episode. So today, uh, like I said, we're listening to Moving Pictures by Rush. Big album for Rush. It's the eighth studio album by then that was released in February 12th, 1981. And this remains as Rush's highest selling record in the United States after certified quadruple platinum. And uh, Drew, if I'm right, they were inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 14? Thought it was 2013. 13, 13. So Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2013. And uh, you went up there to actually go see that, right? I I mean, I didn't see like their actual induction or anything. But I think Rock and Roll Hall of Fame after they the got the same up. year yeah yeah the same I, year i think i remember that so that's awesome it was awesome um, and oh. our special guest that we have on today was there with me oh yeah uh, today we what have a, a what a great guest. way to leave to lean into that that's you know like, what i mean that's a prime segue like if you're like describing segues and tiers that would be at the prime tier it's a prime right? tier it's a prime that's tier a prime, segue that's a prime tier segue um <laughs> By the way, when it gets to the drum part, you have to boost it because I air drum every time. Okay. I have to. I will. I Why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest on the show? Our guest today is Eric Besner. Hello. Eric Besner. Yeah. I am here. I am yeah. alive and I'm in the studio. Yes. Eric Besner is uh, live in the studio. The third and one of the original members of Arcane Atlas, our group. This is great. Yeah. Oh, here we go. Here, here oh, we go. You got to boost it. I got it. I got it. Yeah, Neil Peart. Neil Peart. Every, every time, every single time. Anyways, sorry to interrupt that. Um, this <laughs> uh, this is going to be a really fun episode. Uh, Bez, thank you so much for joining us in the studio here on Prog Notes. Yes, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So as, uh, as an introduction, have... real quick, why don't we go ahead and uh, and, and explain this? So, uh, Bez, you were uh, the the original guitar player of arcane atlas and have now come back in and, and helping us record our third album uh for everybody who probably already knows that drew and i are in a band together well bez is the guitar player that was in in the band from the very beginning uh, all the way up to the, our first album and then he's coming back to help us record our third album so we're gonna have a uh, it's very nostalgic coming back getting together all three of us talking together about an album that has inspired us as a band a lot absolutely yeah. yeah and so it or especially this band but i think also this album too um i i would say i would say that not to veer off and detract and, and center on ourselves too much but i would say that our first album when i think of it it's constellation plus is 
a mixture of Rush and Pink Floyd. Absolutely. And I think those were like our two biggest influences and you can hear that in the music. So yeah, for sure. For yeah, that's something that we were definitely trying to do. Um, you know, we have a lot of atmospherics and we have those heavy drums and bass and vocals and yeah, it's definitely worth a listen to. Um, but yeah, diving, diving into this one, this was a, a big album for us. In fact, I remember Destin when, uh, I first met you and this was like when we were first talking about getting a band together and everything uh -huh. back in 2010. I was, yeah, back <laughs> nine years ago. I know it. Um, I remember talking, I was like, Hey, do you listen to rush? Cause that was, that was something I was really getting into at the time. And I hadn't explored everything that they had done, but, uh, I was really into moving pictures. I remember and permanent waves. And I oh, remember yeah. one of the first songs you said, I don't know much about them, but I do know YYZ. Yep. And, I'm sure actually a bunch of people during this episode who are hearing it from different countries might be upset that we pronounce it YYZ, but we're American and the letter is Z. So it's maybe Z out of respect, us. we should say Z. I don't know, but they're Canadian. So that's why they pronounce it YYZ. I guess by the same logic, I should pronounce it Z because okay. I say his name is Neil Peart because that's how you actually pronounce his name. That's how you pronounce his name. Uh, it's not Pert. So maybe we should say YYZ. I mean, he's one of the greatest um, rock drummers of all time. I think his name deserves to be pronounced correctly. <laughs> well, this is an incredible album, and it's an incredible track, YYZ. So maybe we should pronounce it Zed. I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Who, cares? Who cares at this point? Uh, no, I want to spend 20 more minutes on this topic. Okay. I want to spend a, a I'll go, fair I'll go ahead and play the, the song for you while you're doing it. Just on that. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, to give more information about this album real quick... Uh, some of the accolades that it has earned um, in 2015. Oh, yeah. Rolling Stones magazine listed it as the third best progressive rock album of all time behind In the Court of the Crimson King, which was number two, and The Dark Side of the Moon, which was number one. Well, I'm glad we've done both of those records. I am, too. Uh, <laughs> but that that's a pretty big honor. Uh, there's a lot of progressive rock music out there, and for this to be in the top three is is pretty significant. In addition to that, in 2014, readers voted uh, for, of, of Rhythm, Rhythm Magazine. Okay. Voted Moving Pictures the greatest drumming album in the history of progressive rock. Dang. Which is really significant. Very. That's that's in, because that's a big part I think of progressive rock is the rhythm, is the drums, yeah. and a lot of the times they do some virtuosic, you know, virtuosic stuff. So that's that's pretty insane. That that, that this is the top of of it at least can you know according to these readers of, right. of rhythm magazine so yeah that's it's a big deal pretty it's a big pretty deal insane. it's a big deal in the world of progressive rock right i mean it's it's such a it, it is there's so many things about the record that was so precise and it, it, it's like it's precise in the form of virtuosity that that makes oh, yeah. it glue so well with all three of them you know Oh yeah, and uh, and, and uh, for everybody, I'm, I'm, let me let me mention this real quick. You know, if, if everybody hasn't listened to our very very first episode, um, we did we did uh, twenty one twelve by Rush. Highly recommend go checking that out. That we do a little bit more uh, research into the members of the band. We go into a little, we talk a little bit more about the um, or the history of the the three the, the trio, the three guys in the band. Um, so definitely go check that out. Definitely go check out that episode so you can learn a little bit more. We're probably not going to talk as much about the band members as much as the music and the album for this episode. So definitely go and check out the very first episode on 2112. Anyway, back to Drew. Oh, yeah. No, um, th this this album, Moving Pictures, along with 2112, 
um, are two Rush albums that are listed in 1001 albums you must hear before you die. Dang. Um, which I believe is a, is a, a book. Um, in fact, I think I own that book. Or I know several people who do. Um, but um, yeah, this was, this was a huge album for them. I think this is what launched them into the mainstream. I think that um, 2112 they bought their independence with that record. I, bought is a bad word. They earned, they their, earned independence their independence. Yeah, with with that, um, they they said, and you know, we, we mentioned this on that episode, so I won't go into too much detail. But that was the one where they basically told the record labels, "Hey, we're going to do what we want to do," and they were on very thin ice. Well, that had enough success for the record labels to say, "Oh, gosh, I guess you do kind of know what you're doing." Um, in the sense that people like this, you know, this is still marketable, even though you're staying true to yourselves. Well, they kept doing a bunch of epic stuff. Uh, by epic stuff, I mean, you know, the longer tracks and long stories. And then they got burnt out from that. They said, this is too much. It's fun and it's really cool to do these long epic themes, like, you know, the one directly preceding um, Permanent Waves, which was the album before this one. They had done, you know, a long epic called Hemispheres. Yeah. And I remember, you know, seeing some documentaries on that and reading about that. That just burnt them out. It was some great content that they delivered. In fact, that's my favorite Rush album personally. But it was just too much. They said these nine-minute tracks are just, it's detracting from what we enjoy about the music, even though it's fun and challenging. So we're going to try to make things a bit more concise. And so, you know, with Permanent Waves and this record, they were kind of veering more into still progressive rock, but uh, shorter songs. Yeah. I think they, they enjoyed you know just just <laughs> not having that stress of oh this is 18 minutes this is 20 right. minutes you know yeah. so they definitely uh deviated um, from the norm of the 70s <laughs> I, I see what you did there that was a lyrical uh, vital yeah. signs uh oh yeah gosh but so bez, um, bez well, how yeah. does uh how did this um i guess you say how does this record affect you because you're a guitar player right but just just as a, a listener of music or a listener of Rush, because you have heard all of Rush's material and have been a Rush fan for a while now, just like us, what what is what about this album stands out to you that uh, that you enjoy the most? Yes. Yeah, so in my notes, I have in all caps adrenaline, and I was listening to this <laughs> in the car, and maybe it was the driving, but I believe it was the music that was very moving and very powerful but lots of adrenaline. Like it made me feel like I was just fresh out of a concert. Like that feeling you step out of the, the um, arena, you have the fresh air hit your face. And it's like, you just listen to some amazing, amazing music. And that's the first feeling I got was just like you, you exited the arena and you're left with adrenaline. Yeah. And it's an amazing feeling. <laughs> oh yeah. That's awesome. I have to ask, uh, just off the top, Bez, do you have a favorite track on this record? Ooh, favorite track. I really, okay, so I really, really love the intro to Tom Sawyer. <laughs> Just, I really love that. But other than that, um, Witch Hunt is also one of my favorites. Um, I really love how powerful. That's one of my. That's one of my favorites too. And I feel like it's like when people rate the songs in the album. You've probably seen this, but like when they rate the songs on the record, they always put Witch Hunt as being the the least. Yeah, I think I, I it's best. Um, mm -hmm. not, not saying that it's a bad song. They're just saying like, out of all of the songs on moving pictures, Witch Hunt is the worst on the record. And I'm like, man, I really <laughs> like that song though. Yeah, no, I think I was, I can't remember where exactly I read it from, but 
someone had stated that it was one of Russia's um, most underrated songs, at least maybe on this album. I don't know if, if it's through their entire catalog, but at least yeah. on this album. Um, and I, I love that song. It's very powerful. And like, there's a certain lyric. Um, I'll try to pop up the lyrics real quick, but it's very, it moves me a lot. Um, yeah. Well, I think uh, particularly that, that song, and I don't want to get out of order here, but with that song, um, it's very pertinent to today, uh, especially with the volatile political climate. And, you know, we don't want to get political. Uh, we try to stay away from that. But uh, suffice it to say, things are tense, you know, uh, in the world today, particularly the U.S. And um, a song like Witch Hunt is still very, very relevant uh, today, even though it was written back in 1981. So I, I just find that very interesting that those lyrics can still be so timeless, you know. That yeah, can still it's, be like, it's like Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that's, that's a great song, especially now, to, to kind of listen to. Yeah, maybe it's the way Getty sings it. But the one line in this entire song that always has stuck out ever since I first listened to it to now, till now, it's like the one, two, three, fourth line in the first verse or something. But it says, the mob moves like demons possessed. Mm -hmm. And I love that image. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just a great image. Yeah. I, you know, I think Dest, uh, not Destin, uh, Neil had a lot of fun kind of, you know, he was kind of writing these small little novels, these little books. Even in something like a short song, he used pretty vivid imagery and descriptive language. Um which was interesting. I mean, you know, you could tell that he was a big bookworm and that, sh you know, that showed in his lyrics. He tried to really set a world, uh, even with, again, these small songs. You know, he's not writing a 20 minute epic like 2112, this piece, but it's still which just is a, as which descriptive. Is a larger novel. It's still just as immersive. It's still just as immersive. So it's, yeah. it's pretty great. And this record is really interesting because, Dustin, correct me if I'm wrong, but with this one, they, um, he did a double double drum track and they put them together and that's why with those drum fills they sound so thick and almost like a just just like a couple hairs of milliseconds uh like like a backing like a reverb to the drums like right here yeah mm, like right there so good. um yeah, they they doubled the drum. weird weird sound um but but also it it sounds fitting as well. But I I I personally yeah I mean at least for that song the intro drums were like the the floor toms and the fills and everything they're they're insane oh, on yeah. on this song they're just they're I don't know the drums on this song in particular hits so much harder than some of the other songs um, like I mean comparably probably to to Tom Sawyer it's about the same but it's just it's just a huge huge percussion like I, I don't know I, I the way i describe it is just i mean it, it kind of go back to what bez was saying is that it's just adrenaline like there's just so much power in yeah, in the drums on this record and specifically witch hunt that gives it that stands out to me a lot it's like the exact same thing with the guitar right here like the da -na -da -na. Yeah, yeah this main riff right here oh it's so beautifully composed they're so good at that. Yeah. yeah. No, this, and they're a trio too. I mean, they get so much sound out of just the three of them. Oh, it's, yeah. it's ridiculous. Incredible. Yeah. And that's another thing I was going to say about this record that really sticks out to me when I'm listening to, you know, I've heard it a million times, but listening to it in preparation for this again and just diving back into it. 
I just want to talk about how good this record sounds. Not just the compositions, which in and of themselves oh, yeah. are fantastic, but this record sounds amazing. It is beautifully engineered for all of the instruments. The drums are colorful, they're well-rounded, they're powerful. The bass is very crunchy and aggressive. Yeah. Um, the, the guitar is very ambient and full, but it also has a lot of you know grit to it as well. And the yeah. vocals are perfectly centered. They're up in front, but they don't detract from the virtuosity of the other players or anything like that. And the keys in there are you know fairly minimal compared to the others, but they provide a nice texture, a nice atmosphere that helps build all of these songs as well. It's it's perfectly mixed in my opinion. I would agree. I would agree. And and on the point of of Getty's voice too, I think something that when you know I think we're gonna start talking a little bit more about how Rush was different with this. And you already kind of touched base on that, how they were starting to write more concise songs and concise music. And it, which, you know, it's not, it, it didn't go out of character for the band. It was just a, it was just a step in a different direction. You know, when they did Permanent Waves, they still had, uh, you know, they still had Natural Science, which is a nine minute track on there. And, and you know, they still had a couple of longer material, but they were starting to concise a little bit more, be more concise with it. But then I think with it being more concise and then with this record adding in the, you know, just digital production, you know, in these voluminous synths that are, you know, in Tom Sawyer and it's just, it's, it's really cool. But another thing is Getty's voice. You know, I, I remember, I, I, I remember saying this on the, uh, on the 2112 episode is, you know, why would somebody not, po why would somebody possibly not like listening to 2112 and the first thing that came to my mind was getty's voice like it has this kind of screech effect to it it's very high pitched and kind of nasally a little bit but with this one with the, with moving pictures his i think his voice is, is a lot more tamed and definitely more approachable um and still it's a bit more mature it's a bit more mature more more approachable it's it's not as out there and I know that's one of the biggest things in music for most people is that they attach to the the lyrics, they attach to the vocals. And um, I think with Get Getty's voice in this, and all throughout the 80s and even up into the, I mean, basically from the 80s on, his voice was a lot more tame and, and approachable. And that's something that is, uh, it just happens to be this record that it, it turned out that way, I think. Um, and maybe a little bit of Permanent Waves too. I don't remember Permanent Waves being as screechy or, or uh, nasally or out there in terms of a vocal but standpoint, but Getty's voice definitely a whole lot more approachable in this record, which I really really like. Yeah, I I totally agree. Now I like all of their stuff, but but I agree it's it's much more approachable um, and a bit more palatable. So yeah, I think that goes for a lot of the music on this album. It's a lot more approachable, and I mean it's still definitely progressive rock, but it's kind of more listener friendly you know what i mean mm -hmm. yeah absolutely well what it def i mean the record sales explains that yeah you, you know what i mean like it's that people people bought this record and I, and i and i have to believe that it was because of that it was it was rock music you know it it wasn't considered heady prog music i have to believe yeah i yeah i would i would agree with that like people who didn't know what prog was or really didn't or maybe they did, but they didn't get into it, could still really enjoy this a lot. And, you know, side right. A particularly, I think side B has a lot of the deep cuts, right? I think if you were to ask most yeah. people who have even heard of Rush, but maybe are not big fans, they wouldn't know the camera eye. They wouldn't know Witch Hunt. And they wouldn't know Vital Signs. That's side B. Uh, side A is almost right. all hits. Uh, I think most people know Tom Sawyer and Limelight. 
I think both of those got a lot of radio play. And people in the rock community, even if you're not a massive or avid Rush fan, you've yeah. probably heard of YYZ. You've probably heard of it uh, because of because of the virtuosity. It's like, oh, can you play that? Like, can you play, yep. you know, can you play yeah. that on bass or, or even drums? Like, that's just crazy. It's so difficult and it's really raucous. It's very intense. Yeah. Um, very I think, creative. I think Red Barchetta, which is the fourth uh, track on, well, sorry, the second track, but the fourth on the way I'm listing them. Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, it's okay. The second, thank you. I'm getting out of order here. <laughs> um, the second track on the record uh, is a bit, less well-known uh which is unfortunate for me because that's my favorite rush song of all time is red barchetta but um it uh it's not as well known but still um those three on side a were big they they were big tracks and uh lots of people knew them so yeah thanks it's my favorite it's my favorite track it's it's great Um, timing you know what i mean yeah that's fantastic Um, shoot (laughs) Um, so talking about on the on the subject of like differences um you know how how rush was different with this with this record as opposed to the stuff that was earlier before you know we were talking about more concise more concise music the introduction to synthesizers uh in in a in a bigger way uh the vocals being more tamed um what what other what other what other things do you guys have with how rush was different with this album uh, than, than their past, the, the, the records in the seventies. What other, what, what else you guys got? Um, well, we mentioned, we mentioned Getty's voice. Um, um, I, you know, there, there's a fair amount of, of differences, but they still retained who they were. Yeah. It was still very nerdy. And I kind of love that. Um, I think that this was, the last album before they got very 80s and when i say that i mean before they relied very heavily on synthesizers to build walls of sound yeah beforehand they kind of let alex and the guitars build what a lot of people in music call the wall of sound. yeah um and at least with rock music and pop music um then with signals the one that came after this it was very synthesized that lots of very heavy in-your-face synthesizers and some people weren't about that um later on people were like yeah i kind of like the raucous stuff and this synthesizer stuff is just not it's not what i liked about rush um that being said i think rush is a band that has always maintained true to themselves they haven't sold out ever they did that because they thought it would be cool to experiment yeah um and they wanted to do what they wanted to do and that's what i respect about this band um um yeah but with regards to to previous records yeah i think there's a lot of uh shorter shorter songs granted this was also the last album destin you told me this fact so credit to you for telling me this this is the last album that has a track that is over 10 minutes long which is the camera i mean the last the last album yeah i'm looking at bez here I didn't know yeah. that. I mean, if you think if you think about it, it's like I mean, it, it, it's it's funny because it never had like the hype of like the camera eye never had the hype of being, oh, this is the last ten minute plus song. But if you go back and look at all the records, it's like yeah, this is the last song that's over ten minutes long. Do you think they did that on purpose? I think so. Uh, I I I th- no, I think it just came down to kind of what we said before. They were just like, eh, we don't really want to write a ten minute. We don't need to. You know what we want to say and convey can be summed up in you know 
seven minutes, yeah. four minutes, five minutes. Yeah, and I think I think I mean, you know, when when they talked about the the release of Clockwork Angels, the you know the last record, um, the last Rush record, I, I think what they were kind of getting to when I remember I just remember reading something somewhere about how they were going to return to that kind of to the long songs, you know, the the older fashion, the old fashioned Rush stuff. Um, which, which was kind of the longer tracks, you know, less synths and, and more of just the, you know, the raucous riffs and stuff like that. But they never, they never got over 10 minutes. Um, I think, I think Headlong Flight got to nine minutes. Um, and I think yeah. the garden, now the garden's like seven, but I think, I think everything else is like six, yeah. five, six, seven, eight minutes long and stuff like that. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a funny fact that I just, when I came across it, I was like, oh my gosh, that's you're right it was just so weird to think about it that way i've never actually yeah but headlong flights like oh, seven really? i thought it was like nine it's a little less than seven and a half yeah no but that i think like that's a big benchmark that 10 minute when you get to mm -hmm. the double digits right that's a big benchmark yeah um, i got a, i got a fun fact about and, the camera eye it's um please, please I, I mean I, you know okay fine you should you should tell it like right no, now I, I mean okay <laughs> so so I found I found online that the camera eye has been the like one of the number like the top five most requested songs for Rush to perform live. Remember oh, you seeing yeah. this? The last yeah. time the last time the camera eye was played live was in May of 1983. No 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 no. That's besides not the, true. besides the Time Machine tour. Okay, I was about to say Time Machine tour. Yeah. That counts. I'm actually wearing my Time Machine tour shirt right now. Ah, way to get in the Be mood. Because you must, you must, you must like Rush. God, I hate you. Because, um, because uh, for people who don't know, in 2011, which is when I saw them, I think it may have drifted into 2012. It's like a 2011, 2012 tour, I think. Um, I think it they, started. In, I think it started in 2010. Did it? Yeah, I can't remember. But because it, it was I don't like think the, the tour actually starts until 2112, though. God okay. bless America. Gosh, that's unreal. So the in in celebration of the 30th anniversary of their uh, their album Moving Pictures because it came out in '81, they decided to play the entire album end to end. They they played it in order all the way through, uh, and I was lucky enough to see that because it's a fantastic record. That was, that was great because every night they they would go out and play that album that that everyone loved. So that's pretty. Uh, so Camera Eye was played then. So yeah, that's okay, so amazing. Speaking of Camera Eye, yeah. Um, I'm sure you guys have heard it, but have you heard that burp that happens? Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. I've gone on some forums to see what other people think. They have said, Alex and Getty were in an interview and someone said, so what's with that burp? And they, they were very coy about it. They kind of snickered. They laughed a bit and they said, there's a sound there, but it's not a burp. And then that's all they said. They didn't identify oh, what it was. That's hilarious. They just said it wasn't a burp. So part of me thinks one, they don't even freaking remember. I'll bet you they don't even remember what exactly that sound is. Or they do, and they're just concealing it because they like, this is an inside joke for us. No one else gets to know. But anyways, uh, I have heard some people say, um, like, because he says something after that. You hear like Getty, there's some, it's, it's someone's voice. I think it's Getty saying something after that. And there's a bunch of different theories out there. Some people think it's morning gov or what's up gov. Like, like 
kind of doing an impression of someone in, in England and like, you know, like a Cockney accent, like, what's up, Gov? Like, that's how they say what's up. Um, some people think uh, the guy's, he's saying sorry, guys, after he burps. Gosh. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I've always thought it was like, um, yeah, like what's up or something like that. Or or gibberish just sub bub like you can't really tell it's hard to tell but yes there is for people who don't know if you're if you decide to check out the record for the first time after listening to this towards the end of that song i would say at around what eight out of nine minutes eight seven eight yeah yeah um towards the later half of it there's a section in there and you can hear it if you're cranking it up there's it sounds like a burp it's very faint you have to listen for it and then someone saying something after that. So it's, I don't know. What are your theories? Do you guys just, have theories? They're just a bunch of goofballs, man. Yeah. <laughs> I love them. Oh my gosh. Um, I always thought, okay, I hear the burp. And then I always thought he would say like, nice or something like that. <laughs> I'm, That's no idea, hilarious. <laughs> nice. Oh my God. What do you think, Dustin? Uh, I mean, I'm just going to go with, whatever the forums say because i I'm, I'm just like it's such a justin does not care I, it's such a minor detail that i'm just like so does how could you care. not care about this this is the album oh my goodness yeah. it's i don't know i'm like i mean i've heard it i've obviously millions of times because I've, I've listened to the record so many freaking times but i'm like it's there i know about it i'm like oh yeah it's just some little like studio gag that was thrown in there by the band and they did and they probably did it just be i think i think what's more to say of it is that they're just kind of like they're just kind of goofy which they are i mean if you've ever seen if you've ever been to a rush show or a live concert by rush you see how weird and goofy they are you know they they have little skits in front of their shows and stuff like that and and just and they're just they're just a i don't know they seem like a bunch of just like like this little like friend group from high school that just never kind of grew up you know what i mean like they're just like these three nerds who like oh yeah we like to we like to play music you know and that and that was just been like that's that's just their their personality they're, they're just really they play off each other and they've been friends for freaking 40 years you know maybe longer than that yeah. 50 60 years i don't know yeah. um because they're i mean god they're, they're probably mid-60s now aren't they I know they're not yeah. older than Paul McCartney, and he's in like in his mid seventies or something. Uh, Paul McCartney, I could be wrong. He's pushing eighty. He's not there yet. He has not hit really? eighty yet. I, I but thought he was like one hundred and four. Well, hold on. Maybe he is. Whoa. Maybe he is. Let's look up real quick. Let's go and call him because up and see. he might actually be push. Like, okay, he's seventy-seven. Okay, I was right yeah, initially. Maybe. So he's already passed sixty-four. He's, Yes, he's already past the 64 for when he's 64. But um, oh my goodness. Um. But yeah, the the Rush guys, yeah, they're probably mid 60s, late 60s, yeah, something like that. I would agree. Not agree. Um. So I was doing a but, little. Uh, I was reading something. It said that they that Rush didn't start using props until the mid 90s, mid 90s. Oh really? And they'd be on uh, Getty Lee's side. Um. Again, I don't really know how accurate that is because wikipedia over here yeah yeah um they i mean i've seen a couple of their older concerts and they put a lot of production when they got the the money and the finances to be able to do that i mean even from the beginning when they didn't have uh 
lots of money like back with 2112 and even before that like he had the double kick drum setup i mean the gigantic giant drum kit with so many different sounds and toms and different percussive elements to throw in there and that in and of itself was kind of a spectacle i think yeah. uh, <laughs> but later on i think they developed more with lighting and everything and then finally they, they decided they wanted to do some fun stuff with like you said some props and, and yeah. all of that definitely but, cool um, shows definitely certainly go find the the live albums uh live the live dvds yeah. more more so the live dvds are just they're 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 really really cool highly recommend getting them the r40 tour the r30 tour it's got der trommler that just monstrous nine minute drum solo from neil and so i'm looking at a uh, sorry oh, that's go what ahead. Say. I was, i'm looking at a poster in your studio right here and another spectacle which i've actually dreamed of doing with you guys but neil peart has the double yeah. kick drum the star man. and then alex and then alex lyson has the alpine white uh double neck guitar and then getty lee has his rickenbacker double neck bass and that's one hell of a spectacle i love that look so much yeah it looks yeah it looks super cool yeah it, it is really cool and you know i don't think they did it just for the look though that was nice it was for the sound because they had to actually use a lot of that stuff because they only had three members and they're trying to make all of these different sounds mm -hmm. um, and that's what's also super impressive about the group and you know a, a lot of other groups do this too but um when you see it it's really it's really cool the fact that you know getty's singing and he's playing like keys with his feet you know you know for different pad sounds of, of like key notes but then he switches to actual keyboards with his yeah. fingers for a second and then, you know, and Alex is doing the same thing. He has a bunch of triggers that he has to hit with his feet. And Neil has got, you know, a dozen, like dozens and dozens of drums around him. And he has to know, you know, which ones to hit at which time. It's just, it's a lot of choreography. They have to have these choreographed, I mean, because all their songs just have so much sound in it. And there's yeah. only three of them. And they have to play all of it live. And it's it's pretty incredible when when yeah. you're able to it's see It's one of the that. most impressive so. things about Rush. I mean, it, it's, it, that's just another reason to 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 give them a listen is is understanding that there are three guys that are creating creating this sound and uh and the rock trio is uh i mean i wouldn't say starting to nowadays i think it's a little bit harder to find but I'm, i mean i'm only thinking of a couple of i mean the first band that's coming to my mind is uh like muse and the police in terms of like rock mm -hmm. trios so to speak but they're, they're just not right yeah they're not very common I don't think um, they're just they're just not yeah. they're not very common, and so uh, that's that's something yeah. in and of itself that's just really cool to see just three guys that can that can create all of this sound. It's it's just super, super. I just love it. Well, in in the case of the studio, I, I read something that there, Peter Northfield uh, was their engineer. Paul Northfield. Is it record? Is it Paul? Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Paul Northfield. Thank you. Paul Northfield uh, was the engineer on this record. And I thought it was very interesting what he had to say. He said, in the case of Rush, their own experimental eccentricity was that they always wanted to record things differently each time. And it drove me nuts. We'd get a drum sound, and then after we'd recorded a song, they'd say, okay, well, you know, that sounded great. So what mic uh, are we going to use on this next song? It took, them a it took a while for me to convince them, a couple albums actually, it took me a while to convince them that a lot more sound change would come from performance and the way something sits in an arrangement than changing the mic for change's sake. Right. 
So I thought that was interesting that they were very experimental. Um, and again, that's something that I think is pretty common in uh, progressive rock and all of that. It, when it was first starting out was now granted this this album was after like the big like golden age of prog they were still a prog rock band for sure but the golden age was late 60s early 70s right with all of those pioneers they they were pioneers and they definitely um ad advanced the genre and made it popular too but um it, it like the heyday of it was starting to die down especially with the 80s you know starting like 83 you know 84 and everything a lot more synthesized sounds were coming but when first starting out it was about doing different sounds and seeing what textures you could make in the studio um and in the case of rush they had to find a way to replicate a lot of that live so that i think was really difficult yeah so and, and that brings up a topic that's really interesting to discuss too with prog rock is you know can you get that same sound live? You know, do you want to? Are you a studio band or are you a live band? Or can you have your cake and eat it too and be both? Right. Um, you know, in, in nowadays, of course, like nowadays you can do that because there's so much technology and you can bring your laptop, plug it into the sound yep. system and boom, you've got your trigger for a sound that you've pre-made. Yeah. Um, and, and all of that. But back then you couldn't really do that. And for the sake of the Beatles, they, they, they couldn't do that at all a lot of their sounds right um they they just couldn't they couldn't bring on like a mellotron on stage and and but granted part of that was also they were sick of touring and they didn't want to anyways yeah but even if they wanted to it'd be difficult um and, and all of that so it's it's interesting yeah. which is nothing um, new nothing new to progressive rock you know trying to record things differently and doing more studio tricks and and stuff like that and, and spending more time on it, which I think I'm, I'm sure every single band in the, in the early seventies or mid, mid late seventies, even up through the eighties, were constantly doing that. But, um, I think there's been, uh, I guess, uh, more success with it possibly in, in the realm of the progressive rock genre. Um, another, another, um, this is actually funny. There's an, another, um, fact about Paul Northfield uh, which was, he was obviously the the engineer on, on moving pictures. He was also the engineer for in absentia. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he, uh, which we've already, we did an episode on in absentia. If you haven't checked it out, go check it out. Porcupine tree record. Um, and Alex Lifeson's actually participated on, on a porcupine tree record, but yeah, Paul Northfield also engineered that record too. And it's funny because just the, the ties of, of people, I, I don't understand it. <laughs> I don't, I don't get it, but it's, it's awesome. Like, what do you mean? Like all these connections? Like, yeah. You're like, oh, this person knows this one. Oh, that's cool. This guy yeah, from this band like, knows him. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then, you know, it's like musicians playing another, on other people's stuff. And then, you know, this guy produced this album and he also produced this album. You're like, I would never would have made that connection. Um, but it's really cool. It's really yeah. cool. That even the fact that they're different, you know, music, it's still kind of in the same genre and you can like the fact that they influenced each other, you know, and they, it's really cool, I think. And that's what the, any genre of music really, when, when you get these collaborations between people that are like, Hey, I really enjoy what you do. Like, let's, let's make a song together. Like, that's just really neat to me. Mm -hmm. um, especially when, when you're like a fan of theirs or, or when you really admire at the very least, if you, you know, you, you, very much admire what they do and their mentality and philosophy on music and, and what it is and everything. And 
I, I think that's that's super neat. So um, it's yeah. cool that when you can make those connections, like, oh, this engineer engineered this. That's a completely different record, but you know, it's really neat. Um, yeah. So that's really cool. So Bez, I, you know, with uh, I want to know I want to know your perspective on the guitars of the record because Alex Lifeson is probably or arguably at least to me in my personal opinion one of my favorite guitar players of all time and just because of his vast variety of different types of riffs and sounds and stuff that he creates but what makes the guitar on this album so great yes yeah, so um as we mentioned before the use of synthesizers are a bit heavier in this album to rush's previous albums um, and I really got to give Alex Lifeson. He mixes really well with the synth. The synth doesn't overpower the guitar. The guitar doesn't overpower the synth. And in personal experiences, um, it's really tough to do. Because usually one is overpowering the other. Um, but again, the guitar composition is arranged in such a way that like, you need a guitar for that part. And you can't use a synthesizer to emulate that. And Man, I just gotta give it to him. I mean, <laughs> I mean, like, I just love his playing. And also, um, when they're playing live, it's the three of them. But that I don't know if they did it on any other tours. But it's just the three of them on stage too. So again, like when I saw them, it was Drew. I went to that show with you. I think it was back in 2012. You did. Yeah, yeah. you saw them at the time. Machine, I, at the time machine tour. And I mean, like, the technology has only gotten better, so they could do a trio show you know with better technology but um i'm sure back in the day it was still just the three of them you know they didn't hire uh, a, a keyboardist to play the keyboard parts or another guitarist to do any of the other guitar parts it was just the three of them and as a band i gotta i gotta give them a round of applause for that because <laughs> i know that's really difficult yeah that's actually a really good point yeah i didn't realize that because they didn't have all the help that they have now that's really cool I got, I got a fun fact for you guys. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I got a fun okay. fact for you guys. Mm -hmm. So I found I found this out reading uh, from I believe it was on Song Facts, but I found out that the that Tom Sawyer grew from a melody that Getty was using to set up his synths at Soundtrack. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's like explain that. that again. So Tom Sawyer grew from a melody that Getty had been using to set up as synthesizers at Soundcheck for the shows. Yeah, oh, no I way. think it was that yeah. little. Nanu, 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 nanu. Yep. Yeah. And then another another one as well. Another little fun fact is that Red Barchetta was recorded in one take. Oh, yeah. What? I think I read that too. I just I I totally forgot, which is incredible. That's pretty insane. Yeah. Assuming that it's the second longest song in the album, and it's just a six minute song to begin with. That's wow. It's kind of it's kind of crazy. What other songs have we not listened to on this so far? I think we've we've played we've listened to Tom Vital Sawyer and Barchetta, Vital Signs on Limelight. We haven't listened to Limelight. Limelight that's right. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's. I didn't realize Red Barchetta is six minutes. I never think of it as that long. And yeah, the other ones are like four. It goes by yeah. so fast. No, do you think do you think there's a clear structure on like the way that the album is laid out? I've always I've always wondered that when I when I listen to some of the songs. I, I think so. So like, I think it's laid out like a concert, you know, you start with something that's going to pump you up and Tom Sawyer definitely pumps yeah. you up and then you end or you do kind of like a softer song and then you get heavier and then you end with a song that's kind of catchy and just going to be rememberable. And I think they definitely 
laid out this album in that way to kind of emulate a live yeah. show. Um, I, I like that. Um, I, oh, I like that. Oh, oh, I like that. Do you, oh, oh, I like that. <laughs> but why oh. would you, why would you pay to be educated? Pay to be educated. Oh, oh, I like that. <laughs> Portlandia reference, everyone. Portlandia, what are you talking about? You mean Kroll Show? <laughs> oh, excuse me. Yeah. I thought it was, oh my gosh, I'm getting them all back. I'm getting them all mixed up now. No, no, no. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, I, I like every track on here, uh, with red barchetta. I think part of the reason I really enjoy it is that it's a very simple idea that, um, it's just talking about a car and, <laughs> and the sense of it's an open freedom. road parable that go <laughs> How about that. Yes. Nice. It, it's this, you know, in this dystopia, like cars have been outlawed. Right. And I think Neil just liked the idea of creating this small little, story this little snapshot of saying hey here's the value of just driving or just this sense of freedom and that it's a very liberating song just listening to it it's just this idea of of driving in and of itself as simple as that can be can be just so relaxing which would later come come up in neil's life uh you know he coped with a lot of tragedy and a lot of loss in his life he he unfortunately lost his wife his first wife and his daughter uh within the span of a year um, one of yeah. them was in a car crash. The other one died, I think, of uh, some type of terminal illness. I think it was, I think it was, yeah, cancer. I think it was cancer. Yeah, I didn't know what what kind, but that was very traumatic for him, understandably so. And the way he coped with that uh, was driving a lot on his motorcycle, and he wrote a ton of books about road. Yeah, he he wrote on that, but he also rode across what was it over fifty thousand miles across the contiguous North America. I yes, think, you know. yeah. Um. It's it's pretty uh, incredible, but that's kind of cool that this you know he didn't know that that trauma and that those horrible experiences would not happen until what this was eighty one and I think it happened ten it was so in, a, a little late, over ten years later it was, it was late nineties right mid mid to late yeah um, I think it was right after Test for Echo so yeah late yeah. late nineties like ninety six or seven and yeah. so that was probably over fifteen years later that you you wouldn't ex- that's just really cool that that that's something he thought was valuable back then. And then later it would be something that he actually used to help cope through a lot of pain and stress. So, uh, that's really, really neat. Um, all of these songs on this, this record are all kind of their own individual snapshots. I mean, kind of like most records, but, um, each of these has a very unique story. Um, the story of YYZ, there's not very much one. I think that was just them kind of trying to be math rockish which is, yeah. is really neat to me. Uh, for those of you who don't know, YYZ is, or sorry, YYZ um, is, it's, it's the, 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 what am I trying to say? The abbreviation for the Toronto Lester B. Pearson International Airport. Um, so it's the Morse code for YYZ. Um, that, that little rhythm that they do, that is the Morse code for the, the letters YYZ. I think that's really cool. Something oh, that's so creative, like, really just totally insignificant is that it's like, Hey, we're on a flight. Oh, you know what? YYZ. Hmm. What's the Morse code for that? Hmm. That's a cool rhythm. Let's make that the rhythm of a song. So that's super five, four times. Yeah, super nerdy. And I love that about them and very cool. And like you said, Dustin, very creative, very, very, very creative. Yeah. 
YYZ um, has just like it, it's 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 got some it's got movements of it too, which I really really like it because it's it's the only instrumental song in the album, right? Yeah, yeah, it's the yes. yeah, it's the only instrumental song in the album, and they, and they're they were notorious for doing instrumentals in the past in the, on the seventies and lo- long parts of songs that were only instrumental. I mean, shoot, Xanadu was like what four minutes of instrumentation before even lyrics hit the song something yep. like that yeah it's a while yeah and yeah. and so with with this song but i love the movements of it because it has the almost kind of anxious movement you know the dan 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 and then it has the solo in it but then that bridge dude when that synth hits and it goes yeah. into that straight four four you're like oh my gosh that has like kind of that it- choir-esque sound to it you're like dang but well and like even some of the stuff before that and even during that alex's guitar his his kind of like solo lead stuff there kind of sounds a little eastern to me like there's some eastern scale influence in there yeah and that's what's kind of cool And i think that i said there was no story maybe that's a little bit of a little bit of a story in and of itself the fact that this was based off of an international airport so the idea of travel and it's almost like you're traveling somewhere else to an eastern land for just a little bit and then they go back to this sense of Oh, we're traveling. We're on the run. We're we're going back to flying, yeah. and we're going back. It has to, a it has a very open, somewhere. moving, moving like rhythm to it. You know, it's it mm-hmm. kind of reminds me of a. I mean, not to reference Dark Side again, like we always do for some reason, but it kind of goes to <laughs> on the run. Like it just has this kind of yeah. very jumpy, skippy kind of feel to it, and so it has. It's very high energy, you know, which goes back to again yeah. what what Bez was saying. Being, um, uh, what was the word that you used? Forget the word that you used adrenaline yeah adrenaline holy oh, cow yeah. have you guys seen the have you guys seen the russian rio i have yes yeah. those crowds there talk about energy oh yeah, yeah. oh my god holy like cow. you could see the whole mass of people just jumping up and down and they go crazy for this song and like they made their own little chant for it yes and i can't remember what it is but it's incredible and that's like how i got turned on to rush was actually i was uh at a new year's party with my dad and russian rio was on and i think it was the ver- i don't know how many russian rios I think it was they had. one just one but they had like that one they had like purple yep. dragon yep. with like the the banana hat on or something and like i remember as a kid i was like what band was that that had the purple dragon <laughs> it was it was rush okay and so that's you know i started doing a little bit more experimentation experimentation and got turned on the rush but yeah it was the russian rio and like high energy stuff it's and- I remember YYZ being that song that they're like, that's it. That's so weird. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that, that you, it was like your dad's DVD. Cause that was one of my early memories too. My dad had that exact same DVD and every now and then he would turn it on. I would come in to like, see what he was watching on the TV. And I was like, mm-hmm. this is neat. Now it was before yeah. I really got into them, but that's always a vivid memory. Um, and yeah, right. those those crowds. Well, that's just funny to say the crowds in general for any Rush show. I mean, yes, the uh, the Rio, those Brazilians are crazy in that show, which is awesome. It, I think that's so neat when you have a crowd base that is so excited. I, I think they thought they were at a soccer game or something. I, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> whoa, just, yeah, maybe, maybe they got a little confused. confused. Oh, yeah. just, you know, all those Brazilians going crazy over Rush. Maybe <laughs> maybe they just took it from like. Maybe they just took it from being fans of soccer and they're just like, we're just going to come up with chants. We're going to paint our face and all kinds of crazy stuff. It's, it's really neat though. Uh, we see them getting into it, but yeah, rush fans are some of the most avid, the most insane. Loyal. I mean, you know, incredibly. 
Yeah, very loyal. They, yeah, they're in- exactly loyal, incredibly loyal. Um, and it's really cool because when you're there, because I've been to three. Fortunately, I got to see them three times before they they threw in the towel. And each time, like everyone's air drumming. Like if you like the music, you're not going to be out of place at all at this show, you know. But it's funny because like there's such high energy, but it's not like a mosh pit. It's not people shoving each other, spilling beer on you. Like people are into it and they get really energetic, but they're also like respectful, which is awesome. Yeah. It's a really weird, <laughs> which crowd. is awesome. But it's yeah. also, but it's, it's also really one of those cool things. Though. I'm sure you guys have probably done this before, but have you just like walked around, you got a little rush shirt on, or you see some other guy with the rush shirt on and you just look at him, you'll point out and you just go, Hey, you get it. <laughs> you know, I I I think I don't think I actually own a rush shirt. Do really? you not? I should probably just I should probably just go now. Yeah. You think? I mean, I can give you one of mine. Uh, Whoa! What size are you? <laughs> what? What? Are you asking what size I am? Yeah, dude. I'm like a medium. Destin, Destin that's body shaming, bro. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were the same size. Shoot. Um, He's okay. I'm okay. I'm I'm good. I've coped. I'm good. You Gosh. Were, um, talking about i think another significant song on this is is limelight we already talked about how that was got significant radio play and was very popular uh i think it was a a a big big song for neil lyrically because that was him trying to express his dissatisfaction with fame and everything that came along with that um because they were getting more and more popular um before this record and it's ironic that this this album uh which has this song on it, which talks about, hey, I don't like this sense of adulation, people drooling over me when I don't know you. It's this weird sense of I don't have enough privacy. You know so much about me, and I don't know anything about you. I'm at a disadvantage, in a sense. You know, not that you need to be thinking in those terms, but it's just this weird sense of alienation, that you know me so much that I'm almost like in a history book, and I don't know you at all. And that was what he was saying, and it's ironic that it's on this record, which launched them even further into popularity. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it's so relatable, though. It is. I mean, like, not. I mean, not everyone's super famous or anything, but people can get privacy and respect for that. And so it's kind of, you know, what the song kind of paints a picture of, to me at least. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think Alex has also stated with this song that it's probably. If, I think he says it's like his top three favorite guitar solos to play. Oh, ever. oh my gosh, it's so good. It is, it is fantastic. I, I remember seeing an interview of, of Alex when he was talking about it, and he was like, every time I play that solo, and I'll, I'll crank it up when it gets to it, if, if you guys remind me, if I don't make sure I don't, I don't miss it. Oh, we'll remind you. And it shoot. And <laughs> and so, but he he he, told, he says in the interview, he's like, it's, it's my favorite solo to play because it's my like my heart my heart races building up to the point where I hit that chord and the band comes right back in with me. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and uh, it just has this like almost like pull and tension and release. You know what I mean? And uh, and and just as a fun fact, I think the other two. I think he said Limelight with his favorite. His second favorite's Free Will from Permanent Waves, which is in 1980, just the year before this. But then his third favorite was the solo from Kid Gloves on Grace Under Pressure. Yeah, that's a deep cut. Oh yeah. You know, <laughs> that the the solo to this to me definitely just breathes you know oh, you yeah. have he, he's playing with a with a tremolo bar so it's like he's letting that and it's like you can almost hear the guitar taking a deep a deep inhale and then exhale and like i kind of always depicted that solo as like you know you're coping with something and then 
sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I had to, I had to throw it up. That was perfect because of, and then you took a deep breath, and there you go. Gosh, why have we not talked about the bass on this record? My God. Uh, yeah, I mentioned it in what in the earlier, world saying that it was so crunchy and aggressive, but Dude, I mean, it's just you like can understand why he's one of the most influential bass players in rock history. But like, but composition-wise, this has got to be one of his best. Yeah, I think. Well, like the some tone. of the parts I just love that he the wrote. tone of his bass in this song and this oh, yeah. record too. It's it's just so thick and oh, it's so good. Yeah, uh, you've got that signature model bass, yeah. I've got his, yeah, the the one that he uses now in in shows. Oh, oh, what did I say now? Well, he, he in his later years. Um, uh, yeah, I, I got the Getty Lee Fender Fender Jazz. Because um, yeah, so he was cool. a huge influence on me. Uh, you know, I crud even starting out with our band. I kind of wanted to be Getty. I want. <laughs> yeah. I wanted. I wanted to sing and I wanted to play bass and I wanted to do keys and then it, it was, I mean, you know, he's he's incredible. They're all incredible. They're all incredibly talented individuals. Uh, this is, I mean, just to kind of reinforce the idea that this was such a big song, uh, one of my friends, he, he doesn't really do music. And by, when I say do music, I mean, not just play, but also doesn't have like that much of a fascination with it, you know, right. in general, but he'll listen to the radio. I think it came on the radio one time and he texted me one day because he knew knows I'm a huge Rush fan. He's like, dude, dude, Limelight is freaking awesome. And I'm like, yeah, dude, it is. He goes like, dude, like sometimes I forget that and it'll come on. And it's like, it's so insane. I'm like, I know, man. It's a gosh. Great song. Um, another just fun fact, uh, Witch Hunt, a couple of things. Well, I say it's a fun fact. This is actually a really sad fact. Uh, but oh. I think it's interesting. Um, Witch Hunt was recorded on the same night that John Lennon uh, passed away, that he he was murdered. Whoa. John Lennon was murdered on December 8th, 1980. And uh, that was the same night that they were recording uh, Witch Hunt. So I had no idea about that. The, and, you know, I, I think uh, I, I read some stuff. They, they, you know, they heard about it the same night that they were recording. And they were like, yeah, that was that was really unfortunate. Um, That's what weird. Uh, it's also do you think it reflected uh, sorry do you think it reflected in the music at all um like i don't think they were heavily influenced by john lennon though maybe i don't know i mean i don't know what you know their thoughts or feelings on john lennon no but i, I think you know i i haven't seen anything with them um in in the sense of, of them saying that the beatles were a massive influence on them though you know the, the beatles were an influence on everything after them i'm, I'm sorry I, I will always maintain that uh i'm a huge beatles fan and, and what they did in the world of music is is legendary uh, absolutely legendary but um even if you know they weren't huge fans of, of of his personally i'm sure it maybe affected them because it's one of those things like uh i mean for me like uh a good example I think 2016 is when a lot of celebrities passed away, both in the musical realm and I remember the realm that. Of acting. That 2016 was just yeah. a hard hit for a lot of pulp, pop culture. Um, with all the people that passed away, I, I'm pretty sure Bowie passed away, David Bowie. Yep. And I, I was never mm -hmm. huge, yep. like a huge fan of David Bowie. Not that I disliked him um, at all. I just never really got into him. But it it was it's a big deal, you know, when when someone who has made such a contribution. 
to the world of, of entertainment and specifically in this case, music, when they pass away, it's, it's a big deal. And I'm sure that Rush felt that about John Lennon. I mean, you know, any of the Beatles, when they pass away, they, they just did so much for the world of music. And uh, Bez, to your point, maybe it did. Maybe it did affect them a little bit because uh, Witch Hunt is a very somber and scary type of song. Yeah. And maybe a little bit in Getty's voice. Who knows? Maybe they tracked vocals a different day. I don't know. But, um, you know, maybe maybe in his vocal performance, it kind of came into being subconsciously. I don't know. That's an interesting thing to think about, Bez, if, if, if it affected them or not. Yeah. Luckily, um, luckily, all three of the members of, of Rush are still alive and definitely showing vital signs. Okay. Wow. Um, so Vital that Signs was, is the wow. last song on the record. And Sorry. I think that this was their yeah. attempt at trying to get a little bit into that new wave type of music that was starting to emerge. Uh, and I actually have a, a quote, I think, from uh, from Neil Peart. This is oh, really interesting. Talking about the, you're talking about the cramming? No, well, they, well th- them trying to force this to be a yes. song that people yes, like. Yes, yes, yes. I really like this. So Read this. He yeah. said, at, at the end of an album, it's impossible for us to judge which songs will truly be popular and which won't. We're inevitably surprised. And then there are songs like Vital Signs from our Moving Pictures album. At the time, it was a very transitional song. Everybody had mixed feelings about it. Ha! Mixed feelings. Um, Shoot. It's nice. a lyric. Um, but at the same time, it expressed something essential that I wanted to say. That's a song that has a marriage of vocals and lyrics I'm very happy with. But it took our audience a long time to get it because it was rhythmically very different for us. And it demanded the audience to respond in a, you know, in a different rhythmic way. There's no heavy downbeat. It was a counterpoint between upbeat and downbeat, and there was some reflection of reggae influence and a reflection of the more refined areas of new wave music that we had sort of, you know, taken under our umbrella and made happen. That song took us about three tours to catch on. It was kind of a baby for us. We kept playing it and wouldn't give up. We put our, <laughs> we put it in our encore last tour, putting it uh, in the most exciting part of the set possible and just demanded that people accept it because we believed yeah. in it. Um, I still think that song represents a culmination, the best combination of music, lyrics, and rhythm. Uh, it opens up so many musical approaches from being very simplistic and minimal to becoming very overplayed. Everything we wanted in the song is there. Um, so that song was very special to us, but we had to wait. We had to be patient and wait for the audience to understand us. Which I thought was interesting. I love that too because he's, it's... One of those songs for me that I've always, always have liked a lot, but never really understood why. And and, and I've always thought it's I've always thought it's just been a very unique song. Oh, I love this right here. I love that. But mm-hmm. I've always I've always liked this song because it's it's just kind of I don't know weird. And in certain ways, it's not like it's not it weird, is. weird, but it's weird in certain ways when, when you know, because I think I kind of I listened to Rush when I started listening to Rush, I listened to them in a progression. Like I, when I first started listening to them, I listened to like 2112. I think that was the first thing that I heard and then just started going and just started going with the times, really. I just went like, all right, let's listen to the 70s and I got to the 80s and everything. And there's just not a, at, at the time in this release, there's just not a song, there's not another song like it. There wasn't another song like it. And honestly, I don't even, I don't even think yeah. now. And I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, guys, but I, I, I don't think there is any other song that is like Vital Signs in, in all of Rush's discography. No, not in Rush's, yeah, it, but I definitely hear a lot of Andy Summers in this song. 
you know, like the clean guitar yes. with the chorus effect, maybe a delay in there. Yeah. And also like the reggae feel as well. And that's also why this is one yes. of my favorite Rush songs because I love Andy Summers. And this is a really, this is like Rush trying to sound like the police, but not really trying to sound like the police because it still sounds like Rush. But in the guitar, I hear Andy Summers yeah. and Alex Lightson. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I totally It's so agree. funny too. It's like for like two years, there was just two songs, two records, for some reason that just have reggae influences. Just Spirit of Radio, let's just, just throw some of that in there, and then Vital Signs, let's throw some of that in there. Why? I don't know. Are we ever going to yeah, do it again? I, Probably not, but we're going to do it for these two songs. That's why it's they, special. <laughs> they, no, they were definitely influenced by that at the time, I think. Um, it's interesting to see. I think I saw a long time ago uh, an interview with them back when they, you know, way back when, when they were recording this. Um, or maybe just before that, when they were doing Permanent Waves or something like that. They were talking about what were you listening to at the time, and they were like, "Oh, we've been listening to Pink Floyd's The Wall." And I was like, "Oh gosh, yeah, that just came out in '79, like late 1979." Yeah. And then, um, you know, they were starting to listen to The Police and a lot of white reggae stuff, um, and, and reggae, and you know, the the original reggae, and then some white reggae that again The Police kind of became, and they mixed that in their rock and everything. So, uh, yeah, I agree, Bez. It's really cool. You get kind of get an Andy Summers uh, vibe from from this song too. It's it's. Oh. Yeah, I think you're right, Dustin. It's a very unique song in their catalog because it works, but yeah. it is weird. It's one of those things that you're like, I, I, I like this, but this is different. Like, it's notably different from a lot of the other stuff that they were doing. And I think, you know, I mentioned that in that quote. He said, you know, there was no real heavy downbeat like a lot of our other stuff had. Yeah. So that was a, an experiment Definitely. for them. And it's it's got it's um, got like a cool little... Also, um, uh, I mean, it's just the elements of it. It's got this. It's got this fast-paced hi-hat thing. It's, you know, it's very fast-paced hi-hat yeah. thing. But then this like very running bass line, and then just these stabbed guitar chords, um, which you know, and and to you know what he was talking about with or what Bez was talking about with the uh, the relation to the police and Andy Summers. It's kind of sounds like that, but but then we also have some of the electronic drums being introduced as well um with the um uh and maybe I, i'm fairly certain i mean it sounds electronic at least to me but the um yeah that part um which has some of that like very tight almost it, it kind of sounds like an electronic snare to me um and it may it may be and i'm yeah I'm pretty sure that it is but i don't i don't know um uh, i don't know for certain but yeah, it's got a, it's just got a bunch of different elements of it that make it very very interesting and different from other from other songs that they have. I mean, for some reason, I'm trying to think of of something that's similar to it or relative to it. But did you hear that Getty shriek when it fades out? When Vital Sign fades out, did you hear the Getty After shriek? That everybody, we're talking about when he goes. Everybody yep. got. To I think that's the only time you hear a Getty shriek in this album. Probably right. Um, or maybe there's, there's probably more, but I, I just yeah. Uh, as far as like shrieks, as far as shrieks like yeah. he did in the past records, that's uh, that, yeah. That was a good outro. That was cool. <laughs> I love yeah. that part. No, I love it too. Uh, real quick, I know we've kind of been bouncing around, but just for the the mega rush nerds who are listening to this, the uh, they probably already know it anyways. But the the witch hunt is part three in a trilogy Neil wrote called the Fear Trilogy. Uh, so part one is in a 1984 record, Grace Under Pressure. Uh, part one is The Enemy Within on that record. 
Uh, and he says that it's it's talking about how fear affects your life and restricts what you do. Part two was on a 1982 record, the one that just followed moving pictures called Signals. The song is called The Weapon. Love that song. Is The Weapon is part two, and it is how fear is used against you. Um, so, and, uh, and then this is part one. So, sorry, three. So there's part one. It, was, it worked backwards, right, from how they released it. So part one was 1984. Part two was... Uh, 1982 and then part three was 81 which i thought was interesting yeah, that they released it yeah, backwards really weird yeah um but i think that's really cool in case anyone who's wondering because I, I know some like you'll see on some sites or some titles or whatever when you see that song it says you know part three of the fear trilogy and you're like what is that right like <laughs> what, what are the what other two parts this? um <laughs> worst trilogy ever yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness so can we uh, do you mind if we talk about the album cover a little bit yeah i think we got some oh, time absolutely yeah this is a yeah. really cool album cover it just i was doing some research and i mean i can't really i don't have the descriptive ability to describe the album cover but it has people moving moving photos portraits and red jumpsuit jumpsuits and like these people on the side crying and I read that that was what, like a double entendre. Well, it's, it's, about... it's actually a triple, triple entendre. Yeah, because oh, because better. the back yeah. photo or the back cover is uh, pictures of the film crew making a movie or making a moving picture of the whole of the whole scene that's happening. Right, and then mm-hmm. I read something how the crowd, I think it's a small crowd, like four people dressed in black, they're being moved emotionally by these people taking these portraits, yeah. these yeah. pictures. That, that was really mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. So that was, it's really weird. One of the entendres, yeah. I guess. And I think, you know, in a way it's really neat because that reflects in the music, at least um, from the third, the from what you were saying, Destin, the third meaning of it's a motion picture. It's mm-hmm. a moving picture. I, I, I really see each of these songs as like a mini movie. Um, I, I don't know why more so than other like albums that are not conceptual. Cause this isn't really a concept album. Um, but I just, yeah, I just kind of see it as these small little movies, right? Red Barchetta is very, cause yeah. of the way he describes them. Well, he uses you know? a lot of imagery. I mean, he's just a great writer um, to begin some, with period. Yeah. So it's kind of cool that uh, I, I don't know. I, I hear it in, in the music, the, like someone making like small little movies and they it's like but we made it with with sound instead and you know as put them in the form yeah. of songs and put it on a record so. i personally just love the uh, the use of I, I don't know why this is the case but maybe maybe it just stands out a little bit more to me but they're but the color purple uh not the movie the actual color purple that's used in the album cover they don't use purple in any other record yeah you could argue you could argue that 2112 has it in the numbers 2112 i think and you can probably argue that fly by night has some purple in it but up but after this point like after moving pictures they don't use purple in any of the records any of the album covers if you think about it i don't know why but it just kind of it makes it stand out to me a little bit more. yeah and it's like a it's kind of like purple it's like a grayish purple it's not like a vibrant like yeah. very royal i would i would call purple it or anything yeah I would call it light purple. That's kind of how I think of it. I see like a very, I mean, it's definitely, it's sort of washed out, but I, I mean, I still see it as purple. Yeah. And this album cover, like, do I need to get my eyes checked? Uh, Maybe, 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 maybe all you see is purple. 
purple vision. Oh, man, dang it. But but okay. for this, this this album cover, I mean, I don't know camera talk or anything. I don't know equipment like that. But this album cover has like a very cinematic presence to it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it feels very wide agree. and open. Yeah, and it's, it's really not like a, a subject in in frame, like a picture of the band or, or someone's face or anything like that. And it's not there. You know, it's. Yeah, the 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 way it's framed is very interesting. Um, why is it called Moving Pictures anyway? I mean, is is does anybody have any research on like why these songs relate to Moving Pictures or like or the Triple Entendre? Like, why does anybody have any? I don't have anything on that. I actually. What do you mean? Like um, the the purpose for the for the album being called Moving Pictures in relationship to the songs on the record. Uh, like, it, is there some sort of overarching theme between all seven of the songs that have to do with a triple entendre, or is there is there or you know is the triple entendre um, have another does the triple entendre have another meaning that could be related to the songs in the record, or even just one song? I don't know. Uh, no, I mean I don't have any like specific quotes from them saying, "Hey, here's why we named it this" or anything. Yeah. I've never, I've never actually really, well, to be honest with you, I've never really actually cared to look into it that much. I don't, I, but I, when I was doing the the research, brief research that I was trying to find of of the album cover, I couldn't find anything on. It was just really like, yeah, it's a triple entendre. This is what is it? This is this, and that's that, and that was that was really what everybody left it at. But I couldn't, I couldn't find any greater meaning inside of the know. album cover's mm-hmm. relationship to the. Rest it could have been. I mean, because like album. The, no, the yeah, I, I, I is a really either. cool term. So it could have just been something like that. It was like, hey, that's cool, and then they put their own meanings to it. I don't know, but um, yeah, that's it's very cool. It's an interesting thought. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the album cover is cool. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's cool. It's cool album cover. So that I mean, that's that's qualifiable. That's pretty neat. Okay, that's oh my gosh. All right. We're about to let's wrap it up here real quick. So final thoughts on the album. Let's let's do let's do this. What do you or why why would let's let's put it this way actually. I like this question a little bit better. What person should check out this album? What person should check out moving pictures? Maybe at, at from a state, you. from a state of a listener, or let's actually let's just focus on listener. What state of a listener, like it or the type of person that they are, what they may be interested in, why should they check this out and for what reason? I gotcha. So a lot of people who have listened to Rush, the one track they've listened to is Tom Sawyer. Tom Sawyer is on this album. It's the opening track. If you are wanting to um, jump into Rush's catalog, I think this is a great start. It's, as we were mentioning before, um, it's more digestible. It's still progressive rock. It still has certain elements that are intriguing, but it's more digestible. And I think for someone who's getting into it, into Rush's catalog, this would be a great start. You know, maybe just make the extra push to go on beyond Tom Sawyer. Listen to side A and B in its entirety, and then maybe backtrack to their earlier works. Yeah. Yeah, I would say uh, anyone who likes rock. Like, I'm not even kidding. Um, it's just no, got I, so much. I, no, I know exactly what you're it's talking just about. Got because s- a lot of the time they consider this classic rock. Yeah, it, it's just got so much power. Like the drums are just so intense. The bass is really like high energy, really quick riffs. And the vocals are high, like a lot of other like rock music. But it wasn't as screechy, like you said. We already discussed that his voice had matured a little bit. Still high. But that kind of fit into the whole kind of rock 
sensibility that was going on at the time. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's anyone who would enjoy it. Uh, but again, it's still progressive rock and there's still a lot of stuff to dig into when you hear these songs and everything. So that's, yeah. that's something too. And, and the lyrics as well and, and all of that, there's, there's a lot, but like Bez said, it's digestible. It's very accessible. This is a very accessible album, I think, especially yeah. side A. Side B is a bit different, but that's what's cool about it. That's I think that's what I really enjoy about side B is that it's still rock and everything, and but it's it's very different from the first half of it, um, in the sense that there's more experimentation going on. Uh, mm -hmm. From I, I don't know if I'd say more experimentation. It's just off the beaten track, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I think, I think yeah. my reason for, for the, uh, for someone listening to this album is actually just because it's really fun and <laughs> it's just a really fun rock album. Like it's, it's, it's so much fun to air drum it, totally. you know, all of the, all of the crazy feels so much fun to air drum it. And then the solos too, are just, they're just, they're, it's just fun to listen to. Like it's, it's really weird. I mean, for the same reason that, you know, somebody would listen to a three minute, you know, three minute pop music on the radio is kind of the, is the same feeling I get when I listen to, to this album, you know, that the feeling, the feeling of like, you know, the, you know, you know what I mean? I mean, in pop music, like the biggest thing that I draw towards are, is the, is the percussion, you mm -hmm. know? And I mean, outside of me being a drummer, I think most people draw, you know, in pop music, they're just like, Oh yeah, the beat, you know, it's never like, Oh, that synthesizer was really cool. It's like, no, it's, it's the beat. You, you know what I mean? The, yeah. It's the beat of the pop song that people draw to. And Neil, being completely different from a pop from pop music delivers a powerful percussion section and it's it's easy it's it's great to grasp of and and his the way that he plays is so precise and it's so much fun to just air drums all those fills and i mean there's movies and stuff of that people you know and and people at the concerts and there's it's pop culture it's like he's he's probably converted so many air drummers to real drummers it's ridiculous <laughs> you know I think a uh, a drummer listening to this album, a guitarist, a singer, a vocal, a keyboardist, you know, if you're in a rock band, you play, and like, if you play any of those instruments, you're going to find something in this, in the guitar, drums, vocals, keyboards, that you're going to love. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, they're all so good at their instruments. Yeah. 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 You know, but it's not over the top where it's like, you know, it's, it, it is accessible. Yeah. yeah. I would agree. That's Absolutely. awesome. That's really good. I think, I think we should end it right there. That was perfect. Okay, maybe Bye. not. Okay. <laughs> See Gosh. Jeez. All right. Well, Bez, thank you for being with us, man. He was in, Bez was in town for the day, and we were like, man. Catch nobody can. Gosh. Um, he does accept electronic payments. You can send those to him via electronic fund transfer. Um, I mean, PayPal would probably be best to it. That'll, yeah. that'll, that'll um, do. Yeah. I'll cool. take pennies. Uh, gosh. Yeah, man. Thanks for being on with us, man. This is, this is a lot of fun talking about and talking about an album that has affected all three of us so much and, and, and from all of us being musicians too. So it was really cool. So, but we'd like to thank everybody for listening to the podcast. These are our prog notes for moving pictures. If you enjoyed the episode, learn something new from the episode, please subscribe and share it. We would be eternally grateful. We also appreciate all feedback and comments. And so if you'd like to do that, you can send us an email. Uh, prognotespodcast at gmail.com. You can also send us a voice message directly on Anchor, which is where we do all of our hosting. Um, and you can also uh, check us out on social media, Instagram. You can follow us on Instagram at prog underscore notes. 
and uh, we upload all of our episodes there, and you can reach out to us there. So, Drew, what is next episode's album we will be listening to? Next episode, we're diving back into some more stuff that we're a little bit more familiar with. Justin, this is one of you and I's also favorite records. I can't wait, dude. We really like this one. It is Close to the Edge by Yes. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, one of my all-time favorites. Oh, yes. Get it? So that's going to be fun. Oh, oh my gosh. I just got that. Holy cow. No. Oh my God. Okay. No, I get that now. That's funny. I mean, that's I mean, clever. Think about it. If, if, you, if you just say yes to yes, well, yes. I just, you have, you I have just to got say that. yes to yes. I just so got listen it. to the listen to this listen 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 to this okay. episode listen to the okay. next one and say yes to it just say yes be a yes man be a yes man whoa, to yes whoa. um I can't, <laughs> I can't I'm be a yes man to yes and you'll love it well anyway join us next time as we discover the past present and future of prog rock we're gonna end this episode with limelight just a classic I mean, it's just just a classic song, and we'll be able to go back and listen to that solo again. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next time.